This morning's sermon text and scripture reading from the Old Testament comes to us from the 16th chapter of Genesis on page 11 of your pew Bible. This is God's Word. May we give our attention to it this morning. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing, for she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. And therefore the well was called Be'ir Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bared. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, it is in your light that we see light, and so we would ask that you would open your word to us this morning. You truly are our greatest need, and so we pray that you would grant us what we need this day by showing us yourself. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Well, pregnancy can be a glorious time, or so I've heard, at least from where I'm sitting. Uh, from that time you take your first pregnancy test and see that it has come back positive to the first ultrasound where you see this new life for the first time, you hear audibly its heart beating, the first kick to the stomach and the odd patterns that the child chooses to take at night and what side of the, the womb it will lie on or stretch out in. These are wonderful times. It's a time of great anticipation. 
What will the gender be? What will we name him or her? Who will they take after? What side of the family will they look like? It really is a beautiful time. And then comes the final month where mom no longer feels, you know, cute pregnant, uh, but she just feels pregnant. Um, It's very hard to sleep. It's hard to find a position that's comfortable. Swelling begins to take place in all sorts of areas of the body that you never even knew swelled up, ears and noses, things that uh, have seemingly nothing or precious little to do uh, with the womb. Uh, And yet it happens, and it does feel, uh, again from where I'm sitting anyhow, like those last few weeks take every bit as long as the entirety of the eight months that preceded them. And that part that every expecting mother, uh, expectant mother enjoys the most, I know my wife loved it, is when you go in those last few moments, uh, last few weeks of your pregnancies to gatherings like this at church, and well-meaning and well-intentioned folks say the obvious things like, so that baby's still here, huh? Uh, you haven't you haven't had your child yet, or you look like you're about to pop. Uh, and then they tell you, that, you know, when my first three children, they were all like four months late, you know, all other kinds of encouraging chit-chat uh, to only bring further attention to what uh, is already a difficult reality. But of course, it's the wait. It's the longing and the anticipation that makes the day of birth all the more incredible and joyful, can even make the pains of childbirth as unbelievably excruciating as they seemed from where I was hanging out and cheering from, uh, worth it. I mean, all the waiting and all the pain is worth it. I mean, what if it was different? Can you imagine if you found out you were pregnant and the next day you had a child? Uh, There's something about that, I think, that appeals to us. But think of all that would be robbed from us with that reality. I mean, the weight, as hard as it is, is part of what makes the joy, the final product, all the more joyful. I mean, have you ever snuck ahead of time and found out what your Christmas presents are? It is not as great as you think it's going to be when you go around looking for them, children. Uh, Not that I have ever done such a thing, but I heard of a kid who used to be like that. It's interesting, in the process of waiting, often the story gets better, not worse. And I would think, at least looking back now, if given a choice, most of us wouldn't opt for the quick fix. You see, the patience, the requirement of perseverance is part of the final payoff. It's part of what makes that joy full. Today, we have a text in Genesis 16 that is training us in patience. Uh, Patience, as you've probably heard long ago anyway, is a virtue. Um, Not so much in our culture. This is not a highly prized virtue. We live in the time of immediacy. If you have a thought, you can let the whole world know, literally, uh, instantaneously. Uh, If you want to tell your your wife or friend something, you don't have to wait to the end of the day to have that communication. You can text, you can instant message, you can do whatever is necessary. Our food no longer takes time of preparation. If we don't want it to, we can gather it as quickly uh, as driving through uh, uh, the local restaurant. You know, children, there was a time when you took pictures 
and you would actually have to wait for them to be developed in order to see what you took a picture of. Um, but no longer. Uh, whatever impulse you have, you can fulfill it immediately. And the relief from the pain of unfulfilled desire is always before us. And yet, oddly enough, in our culture of immediate gratification, no one seems any happier for it. Uh, surprise, surprise, knowing what all your friends are doing when you're not around has not made anyone happier. Uh, just more envious, frustrated with their own lives, and wondering if they will ever be as happy as all their friends appear to be uh, before them on Facebook. See, culture is training us in impatience, but that training is completely improper. Uh, it is a lie. More than that, it cuts across the grain of our whole existence of creatures, uh, as creatures made by God. Part and parcel of your faith, part of what God requires of you in faith, is patience. And so to jettison that from your life or to seek to avoid that is to tr cut out the avenue and the means by which God saves His people. The lie that we are told is that without patience and without endurance, you can still have reward. And the Bible says that's just not true. I mean, we live in a time of quick riches and quick fixes, and yet the Bible tells us that all that's real is completely different than that. I mean, life throws at us all kinds of realities. Some of you, as you sit here this morning, are single, and you don't want to be any longer. Some of you are sick, and you have been for some time, and the desire for relief is great. Some of you are without work, and you're weary in the waiting. Others without funds and frustrated. Some of you are young and at an age where you aren't able to enjoy certain freedoms that will be yours later in life after certain decisions have been made, but for now you are cut off from those realities, at least by what you're being told. And everyone in these situations has to wonder at some level, when will God finally come through for me? You know, when will He answer these prayers or these longings of our heart? It has been long enough, and I'm wanting to know, is God really going to answer? You see, waiting is part of our faith, as the author of Hebrews tells us. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. Genesis 16 teaches us today that in the wait, training takes place. But also, and I need you to hear me here, church, in the wait, the story gets better, not worse. You see, the lie that you have been told is that if I can just take the shortcut, if I can just get what I want now, if the desire could be fulfilled instantaneously, then it will be better. And the Scripture tells us not merely that we will wait. We all know that part is painful. But that the cash value, the end result of the wait, is better than had it been given 
in the way that you wanted or desired. The wait is worthwhile and not a waste. With all that in mind, let us turn to our text this morning. And to understand the point of today's text, we must not forget what we already know about, both in the life of Abraham and as we've studied the Scripture. But I do want you to forget certain things. I want you to forget, for instance, the New Testament reading for this morning. Not not forever, just for a minute here. It's a a good text. You should remember it. But we know, uh, because we've studied the Scriptures, because we've heard this story, because we know what comes next, we know that this situation is bad that happens with Hagar. But we won't know that fully until we're told. The Bible will expressly tell us it's bad, but there's nothing in the text, at least at first blush, that would give us that impression. And I will tell you what I mean by that in a moment. I want you to approach this text as best you can with fresh eyes and ears, forgetting what you know, and don't come to conclusions too soon uh, as much as you can, tabula rasa or a blank slate as you read the text this morning. So let us look at the first six verses. There's this seeming problem both shown and solved. There's a seeming problem shown and solved. You'll notice the problem is obvious. Sarah is barren. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. The problem is thrown to us in the very first verse of the text. After the glories of chapter 15, uh, after God has walked through the pieces, after these promises have been put on uh, this most beautiful display by God, our feet are planted firmly back into reality in chapter 16. Sarai still has no children. Ten years thus far of waiting, and seemingly… God is still not ready to act, and that is apparently not long enough for God to act. And so, if God's not going to act, you'll notice that the theme of the text is that the people, the actors, will start to implement their own desires. Uh, Barrenness, as you know from Scripture, is an accursed and shameful situation in this culture. You know, in our culture, where many people take steps to avoid having children, that would have been unheard of in this culture. And in fact, not be able to have them uh, was one of the greatest wounds a woman could suffer. And you'll notice Sarai finds herself in that condition. And so, as she's waited for all of these years, uh, and especially after the promise has come ten years since the promise, she finally moves into motion and proposes a solution. And the solution is hinted at. We find out she has this female servant, uh, Hagar, this Egyptian, and She proposes this idea to Abram, I'm going to uh, give you uh, Hagar as your wife, and perhaps God will give me children through her. And again, because of our modern sensibilities, we hear this, and we're already horrified, and we think, see, that's the problem with the text. But as you read the Old Testament, that's not necessarily the problem. This isn't unheard of in the ancient Near East, and in fact, Many marriage contracts uh, outside of Israel uh, would say in them, if you could not produce children for your husband's name, he either had the right to divorce or the right to take a concubine in order to, uh, you know, uh, perpetuate his name into the future. And what's also interesting about this text, again, we, we see it and we know, okay, Abraham and Sarah, we know how the story ends, but it is also not unheard of for the patriarchs to have several wives and for many of the promises of God to be uh, given through children in what seemed to us as unseemly circumstances. So, for instance, Bathsheba is the mother 
of Solomon, one of the great fathers of our faith. And so it wouldn't be at all out of uh, uh, um, accord with what God does in other places for Hagar to necessarily be the one who births the child of promise. Because you'll notice up to this point, there's nothing specific about Sarah in the promises. God has never said in any of the promises from chapter 12 till now that Sarah must be the one who bears the child. That will come in the next chapter. It'll be the first time she is mentioned specifically. Every other time, the promises come to Abram, and God promises him, you, second person singular, you will be the father of countless children. But it does not name, for instance, the mother of the children. Well, you'll notice the solution is proposed. It works, or seemingly works, but then this problem arises. There's contempt for the boss. As soon as Hagar has a child, she, the fruitful one, is able to look on the barren one in basically smug pride that she can do for the household what Sarai cannot. And so, you'll notice the problem is named. I gave her to you. Now she despises me, so you judge between us. And then there's this solution that's offered. Silenced by Abram, uh, no, you take care of it, whatever you want is fine. Um, and then Sarai does do what she wants. She harshly drives Hagar out, and the problem seems solved, seemingly, because the household no longer has the problem within it. Now, as we read that first part of the text, as modern Westerners, we think all bad. Everything that's happening there is bad. Uh, and that's why the Hagar issue is such a problem. But again, come to this text with the sensibilities of those who are in it, that this isn't such an unheard of situation in this particular day. Uh, so if it's going to be bad, if we're going to look at this text and we know that something is wrong here, if there's something bad, we have to let the Scripture tell us what the big issue is. In fact, what makes the story so confusing is not the first part, but the second part. Uh, the second scene has got to make you wonder what's going on in this text. We're familiar with the first part. We're appalled by it. But let us look at the second scene and see what it tells us and what sort of feelings that, we, that arise in us as we hear it. So you'll notice there's this seeming problem shown and solved, and then the seeming uh, solution is sought and secured in verses 7 to 16. You'll notice afflicted Hagar is visited by the angel of the Lord. The angel meets them, uh, uh, meets her uh, at the spring of water. You'll see these kinds of scenes often in Genesis. They're often places of restoration by a well or by a spring of water. And the angel addresses her, what's going on? I'm fleeing because my mistress basically hates me. And the angel says, no, return and submit to Sarai. And in sending her back, the angel says something that should catch our attention because it sounds like something we've heard before. Look at the words carefully that are spoken to Hagar. I will give you so many children, you can't number them. Where have we heard that before? That is the promise to Abraham, that he will have a multitude of children that no man can number. And now the angel has met Hagar in the wilderness and says to her, you will bear innumerable children. And we have to at least ask the question on the surface, wait a minute, is this how the problem gets solved? 
Notice her response. She names God. You're the God who sees this wonderful acclamation and testimony, much like uh, many other women will speak when God comes and meets them in their distress. And the conclusion of the story is she bears a son, but not just any son, the son at this point in history of Abram, the only one. Abram is 86 years old and he has the son. It's a complete story by all appearances. And what I mean by that is there's a problem at the beginning of the story, Sarah is barren, and there's a solution at the end of the story, Hagar back in the household with Abram's first son. You know, where the problem was presented, the solution has seemed to resolve those conflicts, and now we have Abram, this one who's to have innumerable children, has a son in his household from a wife who has been told she will bear innumerable seed. But we know something's wrong. There's something unsettling about the text to us. But what is the problem? We know there's a tension, but what is the tension? It's interesting. So many modern commentators, because they know what's coming, because we know what's coming, because we say, well, Hagar's bad. There's something bad there. They go on in verses 7 to 16. They have no idea what to do with them because, they, you know, God seems to say a lot of good stuff to Hagar here that sounds like the covenant promises. And so, the conclusion you get is, well, God is really nice even to people that aren't part of the promise. I mean, that becomes the application of the text. But you have to wonder if that really is the goal that the Holy Spirit has in mind for this particular story. Let's go back and see how the author has tipped his hand sufficiently to tell us why this is a problem and not because he took on another wife, and not because we're uncomfortable with multiple wives and a, uh, you know, uh, the, the maidservant bearing children on behalf of Sarai. All of that is strange to us, but that is not the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is told to us in the text. Notice in verses 1 to 6, Sarai first makes what is this kind of low-grade complaint about God. The Lord has prevented And so now go and do something else. So you'll notice she's grown impatient with the process, and she's taking matters into her own hands, and she wants something to happen. You'll notice the woman suggested for the plan is an Egyptian woman. Now, every early reader is going to read that and think, don't do it. Like, bad idea. This is not going to go well. And so that's thrown in there as hint. But listen. Abraham then hearkens to the voice of his wife, and that's uh, not a big issue because of, you know, uh, headship realities, although there's a problem there, as we'll see. But it's an issue because the same exact phrase has only been used once in the Old Testament so far. Adam, because you have hearkened to the voice of your wife. It's the exact same phrase in the Hebrew language. And you'll notice what else is exactly the same. The two verbs used by, uh, concerning what Sarah does are identical, not in just the verbs, but the actual forms are identical, and they're only identical thus far in, in, in Genesis in one other place. Sarai took Hagar and gave to her husband, and Eve took the fruit and she gave it to her husband. Identical language. And then you'll notice Abraham does what Adam did. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. Uh, Both situations involve this reality, a wife with a plan that she then implements at her husband's uh, inaction. And just like Adam, 
Abram fails to lead in any meaningful way. He hears the voice of his wife, and even after when she asks him to act, you judge between her and I, not a word to speak. No, you do it. Uh, We're being refocused here, and the reader is at least saying, we've heard all those words before. It was bad the first time. It's probably bad now, even if we're not wholly sure why the situation is wrong. This has been painted as a repeat of the fall in the garden. What good fruit could possibly be born from this union? What sort of answer to the problem of this fall can come from actions uh, like this? And why did they act this way? The same exact reason they acted in the garden. Eve grew impatient with God's plan for her. There was going to be a time when they would be given access to the right trees in the garden if they waited on God, and then He allowed them to have access. But in their impatience, they took in their own way, and therefore they were judged. Here, Sarai has grown impatient, and she puts a plan into action, and now we'll see the results are going to be somewhat disastrous. They were unwilling to wait for God to give them the good gifts of inheritance, and they've taken matters into their own hands. Think of it, though. I mean, think of it. Think of your own life, and think of Abraham. For ten years, he has been wandering far from home with a promise that he will have an innumerable seed. And think of the name this man bears. Do you know what Abram means? Exalted father. And he is now growing old, and he is childless. You know, it's like your heaviest friend when you call him slim, you know, or your bald friend that you call curly. This is what Abram endures every day as his name is spoken exalted father with no children to speak for. We know that this is a problem. Uh, In chapter 17, it'll become explicit. And so, let's cheat a bit and, and go there. Notice, we have Abram here waiting for a son. He enacts. He has a son. And look at the conclusion. In chapter 17, verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, and he goes on, well, why is that such a big deal? You'll notice the last verse of chapter 16, it tells us Abraham, 86 years old, the next verse. Now, there are no chapter divisions in the Hebrew Bible. There are no verse markers. We have one verse, he's 86 years old, he bears a son, 13 years blank. No part of Abram's history is recorded, and we're told, by the way, now he's 99, 13 years have passed, and the Lord speaks to him again. And in those 13 years, what has happened? A son has been born to him. Right after chapter 15, he is promised a seed that no one can count. Through a woman, he will be blessed with kids that no one can number. Hagar's been in the wilderness. The angel has said, I will give you innumerable children. And for 13 years, Abram has a son within his home to a wife who will also have innumerable children. You can't help but think Abram believes this is it. This is the way the story is going to unfold. The silence has happened for 13. What happened during those 13 years? What happened? The Bible doesn't tell us a lot, but I know two things that happened, and they're profound. You ready? Abram and Sarah got 13 years older, and Ishmael turned 13. For 13 years, he's had a son. 
who's now matured to the point of manhood. And for 13 years, Abraham has been convinced this is the seed. It has to be. What, now that he's 99, now Sarai's going to have a son? Remember, the promise has never been specified that it has to come through Sarah. Hagar has been told, you will have innumerable children. Do the math. Abram's convinced, and if you don't believe that, when God finally tells him, Sarai herself will bear a son in chapter 17, what does he say? Oh, Lord, may Ishmael live before you. What's he saying? I don't buy into that. Ishmael's been my hope. Let him be the answer to the problem that has been pronounced before my life. This is my son. This is the one that you've given me. Let him be the son of promise. And God says, no. You will have to wait for me. I mean, how brutal. Can you imagine? 99 now. And now you're being told, Sarai, your wife who has been barren the whole, uh, the, the whole uh, length of your marriage now, now she will have a son? I mean, think of Abraham's life thus far. I promise you a land. He takes him into it. He gets a famine. I promise you a seed. His wife is taken. First thing, I promise you a seed again. He has his first and only son, and for 13 years that son lives with him only to be told that's not the seed. Chapter 16 seems like a complete story, but you'll notice it's a false resolution. It is set up that way on purpose to introduce chapter 17 as such a big deal. And in chapter 17, for the first time, Sarai is going to be named specifically as a, the bearer of the promised child. What are we to learn then from that? Why does a story give us a false resolution to make this particular point about the life of faith? The life of faith that you have been called to, dear brothers and sisters, is one that requires us to wait on God. That wait is not always a comfortable thing. It's a life that requires us to depend on God's way and God's timing. We must not try to take the promise, to take heaven, to take the new creation, to take our everlasting joys by force and into our own hands, seeking them our own particular ways. What sort of life is this? This is the Christian life. It is a life of patience and faith. And see, the deception that has taken place for all of us in this culture, part of the lie that we've been told is, come to Jesus, and whatever you are lacking, He will have fulfilled. Whatever your dreams are, He will assist you with them. And the Bible tells us, come to the Lord, and He might make you wait for what feels like excruciatingly long periods of time in order to fulfill His will in your life. Lord God, it's been ten years. I want a wife. I want a career. I want children. I want companionship. I want to be healed, Lord. The world would tell you, then do not wait. You've got to take hold of these things, even if it seems you might be compromising here and there. But God says to you plainly this morning, put your hope in me and wait, for the end of the matter will be far better than the beginning if 
you allow me to write the story. I mean, what is better? Think of Abram at the end of his life. You think he gets there and says, man, I wish the Lord would have just let Ishmael be good enough. Or do you think as he beheld Isaac, born of his own wife, as he held him in his arms, circumcised him on the eighth day, as he saw God's promises coming to fruition before his eyes, was that better? Was that worth trusting God for? Or was his way wiser and preferable? You see, we have seen this story over and over. I mean, Christ, our sure hope, is clear proof of this, who waited for his father. He rejected the offer of the, of the devil to take the kingdom now. He rebuked Peter when he said to avoid suffering. He says, I've heard that voice before. Get behind me, Satan. You were in the garden with Eve in her impatience. You were there with Sarai in her impatience. I will wait for the timing and the method of my God. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knew this truth, that through patience and waiting on God comes a glory, even if that glory means we walk through suffering to get there. You'll notice the suffering is not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be. Did you hear what Paul is saying there? He's saying the sorts of things Abram believes at the end of his life. Waiting for Isaac isn't even worth comparing to what it would have been like had I not waited. You know, there's comparisons constantly in our culture. You know, LeBron James or Michael Jordan, who's the greatest of all time. Uh, There was a time in my young life, because I was such a large California Angels fan at the time, um, that I wanted everything that had to do with that, that team. And I had a neighbor who had collected baseball cards. I'd collected baseball cards. And he was a nephew to the third baseman of the California Angels. And so he said, hey, I've got a deal for you. He was in junior high, and I was in elementary school. I should have known right there. I should have known. I got a deal for you. It was bad. Uh, and he said, I've got a lot of Doug DeSensei cards. I mean, good ones, mint condition. I can give them to you. And he says, all I want to trade for them are your Pete Rose rookie cards. And you know, who's Pete Rose anyway? Who cares to a kid in California way back then? Uh, I just thought, I love the angels. I want this. And, and, and I remember I made that trade, and I came home, and my father was mortified. He said, son, do you know the worth of those cards, what they'll be worth? This is even before the scandal, for Pete's sake. Uh, now, had I gone to my father first, and had he held me up from making that trade, and we talked on the phone today, I wouldn't have said, Dad, I really wish you would just let me get the Doug DeSensei cards. Those would be really nice to have right now. I would have thanked him for making me wait and be patient in that situation. And at the end of the day, at the end of your life, when you look at the story that God is writing over your existence, whatever pain you're enduring currently, brought into your life by His sovereign hand, you have got to trust that your loving Father is not making you wait out of some sort of sadistic, uh, you know, pain, torturous uh, sort, sort of uh, pleasure that he gets, but rather because the glory that he's going to give and the answers that he's going to supply are far greater than any story you would write for yourself, even as Abram has shown us this morning. God will take Sarah as good as dead 
Abraham almost as old as the earth itself and produce Isaac. Which story is better? Which is to be preferred? Which, at the end of the day, do you want for your own life? What are you waiting for? What good do you think God is withholding from you at present? Do you think God doesn't know? That He just doesn't care? That He can't see? And what are you tempted even presently to do to escape that sort of waiting? What have you already done? Ask yourself. And for those of you who didn't wait, did it work? Was it worth it? We all know these truths. You have entered this story before, the story of our father Abram, the story of faith. The end of his story, the story of Abram, the story of our Savior is beautiful, more beautiful than a formerly barren woman giving birth to a long-awaited son. This is just a mere foretaste of what you will inherit. The true end is the glory of the kingdom with everlasting life with your king. What awaits you there cannot be compared to everything that you're tempted to cash it in for now. Look to Jesus, the patient one who has inherited all things. See that God is good. He is the God who sees and wait on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so high are your ways above ours and your thoughts above our thoughts, and we pray that we would bow the knee to you, that we would trust you in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our uncertainty, in the midst of our delayed gratification. May we trust you wholly, and may you prove yourself strong on our behalf. We wait for you, Lord, and we know that you will not fail. So grant us patience and faith as your people, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.